Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Barry Steiner. I'm the missions and care pastor here at BCC, and I have the honor and privilege to bring God's word this morning. And over the past few weeks, we've been going through this series called Living in the Noise. And during this time, we've been examining the book of 1 Peter, going through it verse by verse. And as we've done so, we've seen that the central theme of Peter's letter here is encouraging believers, these believers in Christ, to stand firm in their faith, even in the face of the suffering and the persecution that they're facing. We've said that the noise that we are living in as Christians here in the 21st century is because we're living in a culture that is becoming increasingly, increasingly hostile towards Christianity. Now this letter, it's a powerful reminder of the hope that we have in Christ, even in the midst of suffering. Throughout history, God's people have been a misunderstood minority. And because of this, we should expect to face hostility in this world. We've chosen to live under the rule of a different king than the one that this world is chasing after. You see, we've chosen to follow King Jesus. So I hope that you found some encouragement here as we've studied the book of 1 Peter over this past month. And this morning, we're going to wrap up this study as we work our way once again, verse by verse, through chapter 5. So turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 5. And as we do so, let me say this. Although it was written in a different time, into a completely different culture, I believe that God's Spirit wants to speak to you today about life in 21st century America. Because God wants to deal with you. He wants to deal with you in the midst of your situation, your needs, and your problems. This book is for you. This chapter we're going to read this morning is for you. And so let's pick up together, beginning in verse 1. And it says this, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is, to, is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So as we pick up this passage, we see that Peter begins exhorting or encouraging those that would be in a position of leadership in the church. He's exhorting them to care for these suffering and these persecuted Christians that are in the church of this day. And also, Peter wants to show them the same kind of leadership that they should have that Jesus showed to his followers. And this is important to note. 
Because some of us this morning, as we sit in here, we would not consider ourselves to be leaders in the church. We're, we're not in a position of leadership. If you're not in a position of leadership, though, like Peter's referring to here, it's important for you to see these things anyway. So don't check out this morning. Don't kind of stop paying attention because you said, I'm not a leader. This must not apply to me because I believe God wants to show each and every one of us the kind of leaders that he has equipped for this church and what he expects out of each and every one of these people that are in a position of leadership. And as we read verse 1, these opening verses here, Depending on which translation you're reading from, we've read from the ESV, you may have seen several words. You probably saw the word elder, and bishop, and overseer, and shepherd, and pastor. And it's important that we understand this morning that we can read these words interchangeably. They're used interchangeably here in the New Testament. And in verse 1, Peter mentions an area of commonness that he has with the elders to whom he is writing this letter. Peter calls himself a fellow elder. He's aligning himself with those leaders that he is writing to and addressing in this letter. Here we also see that Peter is writing as somebody who has a personal relationship himself with the suffering and risen Savior. Notice the word he uses here. He says he is a witness. Now, a witness is somebody who sees or hears something and then tells others what he has seen and what he has heard. So Peter, he's testifying, he's giving testimony to who Jesus Christ is. Remember, Peter was there when Jesus taught and when Jesus preached. He had personally seen the miracles that Jesus had performed. Peter had seen the Lord bound and mistreated and delivered into the hands of wicked men. Peter was personally with Christ. This is a part of his past. It's a part of who he was. He says, I was there when Jesus suffered. But now looking to the future, he also says this. He says he is a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Now, the glory is evidently the same salvation ready to be revealed in the last time that Peter has already spoke about earlier in this letter. In 1 Peter 1.5, Peter talks about this glory that, we, that will be revealed, this salvation that will come in a later time. Peter is saying that he's a partner, that he is a sharer in this future glory. So basically, he's writing to the leaders of this letter, and he's saying to them, unlike you, unlike you, I was personally with Jesus, and I watched him suffer. But like you, you get to be a part of this. I'm waiting for his return. Now, the persecution which this church was suffering from, it offers believers a chance a chance to show the world the surprising generosity and love of Jesus, which is fueled by the hope of this return. The most important thing I want you to notice overall is that Peter writes as one who has had a personal encounter with Christ. 
He's had a personal relationship with him. And this is the mark of a true shepherd. The mark of a true leader. It's someone who has personally walked with Jesus. Somebody who is growing daily in their relationship with him. Because when a relationship with Jesus is real and it's being cultivated and it's growing, this gives us something in which we can share and minister to others. And this is what Peter is calling on each one of these church leaders here in 1 Peter to do. To shepherd and to faithfully lead the flock that God has entrusted to their care. Something else that I want us to see when we look at God's word, is that all passages of scripture are driven by the verbs that are in that section. And here as we look at verses 1 through 4, there's a verb in this passage that this entire passage revolves around. And we find it in verse 2. The verb is the very first word we see, and that word is shepherd. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. The Lord is often seen as a shepherd in Scripture. Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 100, it says, we are the sheep of his pasture. What we see in Scripture is that shepherds are always put in a good light because of their care for the sheep. However, the sheep, the sheep on the other hand, are not always put in the greatest light in the Bible. In fact, Isaiah 53, 5, it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The truth of the matter is, the only time sheep are ever put into a favorable light in Scripture is when they're placed under the supervision of a good shepherd. Because sheep get easily lost. They don't navigate very well. Sheep aren't known to be able to find their own way. They're lost. In fact, one professor of philosophy, tongue-in-cheek, kind of said this about sheep. He said, the existence of sheep is evidence against the theory of evolution. There is no way sheep could have survived the process. They require constant oversight, constant leading, constant rescue, constant cleaning, or they will die. A book that was written by a shepherd a few years ago, it includes these words. It says, sheep just don't take care of themselves. They require more than any class of livestock. Endless attention and meticulous care. The behavior of sheep and human beings is similar, he says, in many ways. Our mass mind, our mob mentality, our fears and timidity, our stubbornness and our stupidity... They parallel each other in profound importance. The news, social media, entertainment, even the words of well-meaning Christians, they all add to the noise and this mob mentality that each one of us are living in. And yet, Peter addresses the people of this chapter, of chapter 5, as a flock now, I don't believe he does that to put anyone down. I believe what Peter is simply trying to do is raise the bar of integrity, 
saying that anyone who's going to be a leader over this flock has to meet a certain criteria. As the shepherd goes, so go the sheep. As the shepherd grows, so grow the sheep. If the shepherd is growing, then the sheep are growing. But if the shepherd is stagnant, the sheep will be stagnant. Let's look at the criteria that Peter sets forth for these leaders in verses 2 and 3. It says they are to, over, they are to exercise oversight, that they're to be an overseer. This means that they're to look upon, to inspect and to oversee, to look after and care for God's people. Not under compulsion, not because they're forced to do it or they feel forced to do it, but that they serve willingly, that they serve voluntarily on their own accord, as God would have them in accordance with his will and his mind. It should never be for shameful or dishonest gain, but they should serve eagerly with a cheerful readiness, not dominating or domineering over those in their charge, but they're to be an example to the flock, examples that are suitable for imitation. The example I'm reminded of here is what the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, when he writes, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. As Christians, not just as Christian leaders, as Christians, our walk and our talk must mesh. Not only on Sunday, but this should be a lifestyle of the Christianity that we profess. Christian leaders should model love and humility and gentleness and patience, forgiveness and peacefulness and all the other qualities of Christ. As we look at verse 4, it says this, it says, And when the chief shepherd Jesus, it's talking about, appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Man, this is a great title. It's a perfect title for Jesus, the chief shepherd, the head shepherd, Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. You know, when we go through Scripture, you will often notice that the figure of a shepherd is one of the most heartwarming pictures of the relationship that Jesus Christ has with his people. It's a picture of his care and it's a picture of his diligence. Here, Peter identifies Jesus as the one who is in charge of all the shepherds. Jesus is the head of church leadership. He's also showing that Jesus is the supreme example of what a shepherd should be. It reminds those of us who are in a position of leadership that we are not the chief shepherd. Jesus is the chief, the chief shepherd, amen? Listen, these are his people. This is his church. This church, BCC, belongs to Jesus. Can I get an amen? 
Listen, he purchased us with his blood. This is his church, and we are his people. So Jesus is saying to his leaders, you serve me. You love my people. You be an example to them. You encourage them. You teach them. You love them. Did you catch where it says Jesus is the chief shepherd and and he's coming back? He's coming back. Verse 4 says this, When Jesus appears, faithful shepherds will receive their reward. Now as we get to 1 Peter verse 5 and following, Peter now kind of shifts gears. Where he's been talking to the leaders of the church up to this point, he now addresses those who are under this leadership under the leadership of the church. And this is where we all need to listen in because each and every one of us are under the authority of Jesus Christ. And we've already read this, but I want to read it again. It says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, to be subject means that we are to submit to something or to someone. And this word, submit, I think if we're all honest this morning, it's a word that we don't like. It's a military term. It's a military term that means to align yourself under authority. And many of us would probably admit we struggle when it comes to authority, the authority in our life. But here Peter is saying, he's saying specifically that those who are younger should submit to those who are older, to those who are more mature in their life and in their walk with Christ. I think this is a universal principle between all believers. Because when we look into Scripture, we see... That there is this principle of submission between leaders and non-leaders. Husbands and wives. Older men and younger men. Parents and children. But this should actually be the whole dynamic of every Christian interpersonal relationship that we have. To submit. You know, this universal principle that I'm talking about, it's actually found in Paul's writings in Ephesians 5.21... Paul writes this, he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So why do we submit? Out of reverence for Jesus Christ. Every relationship we have ought to be characterized by a stepping back and putting other people first. And we do this out of our reverence for our Lord and Savior. The normal tendency that many many of us have is to step to the front, to make it all about us. But the Spirit-led tendency that Christ so desires of us is to step back and to put others first. You know, it would make all the difference in the world, wouldn't it, if we would start to do that? You know, if we were to submit to others, if we're to submit to others, it It takes humility. 
In fact, Peter tells us to clothe ourselves with humility. Clothe ourselves with humility towards one another. Why? Why do we do this? It's, it's a pretty good reason. Peter writes and he quotes Proverbs 3.34 here. He kind of paraphrases it actually, but he says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now this word oppose, it's, it's a really strong word in the Greek. Once again, this is another military term that Peter's using here, and it means to battle against. So God battles against the proud because pride calls out God's armies. No wonder it says in Proverbs 16, 18 that pride goes before destruction. We have to put on humility. Why do we have to put it on? Because it's not naturally there. My flesh does not want to humble itself. It just doesn't want to do that. It doesn't want to be told what to do or where to go. My flesh doesn't want to be told what's right and what's wrong. In fact, my flesh, it doesn't want to be told anything. My flesh wants to do what my flesh wants to do. So God's word here, it tells me I have to put it on. I have to choose to do this, to clothe myself with humility because God opposes those who are proud. And it's the proud man who says, who are you to tell me what to do? You know, I find it extremely interesting here. I didn't know this until just this week as I began to prepare for this sermon. There's some Bible translations where it says, clothe yourself with humility. It actually translates it to this, to put on the apron of a humble servant. Put on the apron of a humble servant or to put on the apron of humility. Now what this apron is, what this apron of a humble servant is, is it was usually worn by slaves. So when you have this apron on, the people who would see you would know that you were a slave. So Peter, he tells us to put on this apron, to have this attitude of humility, which shows that you are a servant and a slave to all. You know, we actually have an incredible example of this in Scripture. And this example is Jesus himself. Jesus himself is our example. Now, Peter's actually kind of referring back to and making reference to the time that Jesus washed his disciples' feet. Do you remember this story? Jesus and his disciples, they're, they're in what we now call the upper room, and they're eating the evening meal, and Jesus gets up, and he removes his outer clothing and Scripture tells us that he wraps a towel around his waist, this apron of humility. And Jesus begins to perform the duties of a servant or a slave. He pours water into a basin, and he begins to wash his disciples' feet. I don't like feet. Feet are nasty. I can handle my own feet. But Jesus gets down and he begins to wash them. 
And then after washing each foot, he takes that foot and he begins to dry it off with this towel, with this apron of humility that he has put around his waist. And it still blows my mind to think of my Lord and my Savior getting down on his hands and knees and doing this. I think what blows my mind more than anything is that he would wash the feet of Judas. The very one in just a few short hours time who is going to betray him. Who is going to turn him over to the authorities where he would be arrested, tried, convicted, and crucified. And Jesus knew Judas was going to do this. Because he flat out tells him. It blows my mind. And so Jesus has washed their feet, and he finally gets to Peter. And, And he says to Peter, the author of this letter that we've been looking at for this last month in John 13, 7, he says, what I am doing you do not understand, but afterward you will understand. A few verses later he says, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So during this time, this time that they're up in the upper room and Jesus is washing the disciples' feet, Peter does not understand in this very moment what Jesus is doing. But I believe Peter truly understands what Jesus did now that he writes this letter. As he's writing this letter, I believe he's thinking back to this, and he does his best to communicate to the readers that this is the type of humility that each and every one of us should have as well. He says, this is how we ought to humble ourselves in the very same way that Jesus did by, coming a, but by becoming a servant and a slave to all. As we continue along, as we get to verses 6 through 10, Peter is now reminding these persecuted Christians about the real enemy that each one of them are facing, the real enemy that we're facing. And this hostility, Peter says, is not simply cultural. And it's not even political. He says that there are dark spiritual forces that are at work here in our world. Inspiring hatred and violence towards Christians. Peter says these believers must resist this evil by staying faithful to Jesus Christ and to his teachings and anticipating his return and ultimate victory over this evil. You know, Peter wrote this letter not only to the persecuted church, but he also writes it to those who are struggling with living out their faith each and every day. And I'm positive that this is where a lot of us can still use that same encouragement today. Because the difficulty that many of us face is not necessarily persecution. Yes, there are countries all around the world, even today, where Christians regularly face persecution and even 
face death because of their faith. But most of our struggles come from our own failure to remain constantly under the lordship of Jesus Christ. The way to live an effective Christian life, the way that we live in the noise of this world, is found in living in His strength, not our own. In living under His control and not under self-rule. I think we'd all agree that it's easy to serve Jesus Christ when times are good. And it costs us nothing to hold on to our faith. But there are times in life where we grow weary. There's times in life when we feel defeated. When it seems as if the circumstances of the life that we're living are going to surely overwhelm us. It's in these moments that we choose between dealing with life in our own strength or remaining dependent on the Spirit of God living within us. If you find yourself in this situation this morning, I want to encourage you to take heart because God has a word of encouragement for you. His desire is to use these difficulties that we go through to strengthen us, to perfect us, and to demonstrate to us how he wants to care for us. As we continue reading 1 Peter 5, 6-10, it once again says to humble yourself, therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. In verse 6, we once again see this word, humble. Humble yourself. I hope you're seeing by now that humility is really a key theme that's woven all throughout this chapter. We're to remain humble. We're to stay teachable. We're to stay open to correction. Because to live in the noise, we must be humble. We need to rid ourselves of the arrogant, self-seeking ego that is within each and every one of us. The thing that says, I want, I feel, I think, it's important, look at me. This attitude it has to be humble before God can really have His way in our lives. To the first readers of this letter, so in the context of 1 Peter here, the humbling that Peter probably had in mind may be accepting and enduring the humiliation of the rejection and the persecution that they were facing. Peter has repeatedly indicated throughout this entire chapter that God has a purpose for their situation. It was through this persecution that their hearts were in a place that God was able to humble them. And for you and me, it could just be the frustrations of our everyday life. Rather than complaining about them, what if we submit? What if we were to submit to the Lordship of Christ? Because it's when we humble ourselves, and only when we humble ourselves, under God's hand, that Scripture says He will exalt us. 
God uses a variety of things in life to humble us, doesn't he? You know, sometimes God uses other people. <laughs> Extra grace required people, if you know what I'm saying. You know, sometimes he might use tragedy in our life or loss. Even though God may not have sent that calamity your way, I want you to understand this morning that he could still use it for his good. Romans 8, 28, it says, All things work together for good to those who love the Lord. You know, our problem is that we won't accept the sovereignty of God in our life. You know, we live under the delusion of self-rule. We complain and we struggle. Allowing God to humble us, though, means that we remember that God is in control. Nothing will happen that God has not allowed to happen. When he allows it, understand that he has a purpose for it. And that purpose is always, always for our good. Humility means accepting God's rule instead of ours. It means accepting his rule when he doesn't always give us an explanation why. When we humble ourselves, this verse, it comes with the promise, did you catch it? So that in the proper time, he may exalt you. And this exalting that Peter has in mind is presumably the same exaltation that he spoke of in 1 Peter 4, 13. Derek led us through this verse last week, but I want to read it again. It says, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. This exaltation, it's speaking of eternal life. When we are humbled, when we're made low, and we come to the sense of our own weakness, we will be forced to depend on him. And that's the next thing I want us to see in the text as we look at verse 7. To be dependent on Jesus, because to live in the noise, we must be dependent on Christ. Verse 7 says, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. I feel like I'm giving you a Greek lesson this morning, but this word casting in the Greek, it has an interesting meaning. It means to throw something onto somebody else. It's kind of like if you were going backpacking and you're with a friend and your backpack, it begins to become a little bit heavy and it becomes a little bit hard to carry and you take it and you're like, here, this is heavy and you just throw it on your friend. You know, your friend may not really appreciate it. He might not be happy with you. <laughs> but this is literally what it's meant to cast your anxiety on the Lord. But the difference is, he wants you to throw it on him. Jesus wants you to cast that anxiety on him. The word anxiety in the Greek, it means to be pulled in different directions. truly what anxiety does. It pulls us in all sorts of different directions. I want you to understand this morning, though, that you were created to be pulled in God's direction. But ever since sin came into the world, we're being pulled in all sorts of directions. That's why life seems to get so noisy at times. Anxiety does this in our lives. We, we struggle with fearful thinking and attitudes. We run around trying to fix every problem in our lives when all we need to do is come to God and depend on Him. To cast all of this on Him 
You know, one of the problems with modern Christianity is that it's nothing more than a secular self-help philosophy disguised as religious attire. Instead of preaching that we need to see ourselves as nothing and find who we are in Christ Jesus, many pulpits today are preaching a message that basically says God helps those who help themselves. But nothing can be further from the truth of Scripture. The enemy knows that fear and anxiety are going to distract you from God. So we need to learn to be obedient to the Word of God, to cast your distractions on Him, to cast your anxiety on Him. And Peter gives us the perfect reason why we should do that. Because He cares for you. God cares for you. Let that truly sink in for a moment. The creator of the universe, the redeemer of all of mankind, cares about you. And I know this is hard to think through when there's 8 billion people currently on this planet and about 8 billion people who have lived before. How could God care about me? But he does. God loves us. The creator of the universe, the redeemer of mankind, cares for you. He really cares about you. He knows you. He knows the numbers of hair on your head. He knew you before you were created in your mother's womb. The creator of the universe loves you. And he desires for you to know him more and more. Literally, his care surrounds you. Remember, he is the chief shepherd that loves and cares for his sheep. And he loves and he cares for you. Very quickly, let's wrap this up as we continue with verse 8. It says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a lion roaring, or a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now, to be sober-minded, this goes way beyond not getting drunk. Sure, that's a part of it. But we can muddle up our minds or our way of thinking with so many things other than alcohol. Lust, pride, anger. There are a lot of things you can allow into your life that you will keep you from thinking clearly. It's important that we stay sober-minded so that we can be awake, so that we can be watchful, so that we can be alert. In fact, to live in the noise, we must be alert. This, this passage, it tells us that we have an enemy. Here, for the first time in the book of 1 Peter, Peter identifies the one who incites persecution against Christians. We have an adversary, people. The devil. Through careless neglect and a lack of careful attention, our souls can drift away from Christ and become easy prey to Satan's attacks. And Peter warns us that he prowls around like a lion, and his desire is to, to devour you. And this word devour, it means to swallow up whole. To swallow up overwhelmingly. And I want you to understand this morning that the devil wants to swallow and devour your life. The devil wants to devour your hope. The devil wants to swallow up and devour your faith. That's what the enemy wants to do. So your job as Christians is to be sober-minded, to be clear-minded, to be watchful and alert. So what do we do when Satan attacks? 
Scripture says that we resist him. It reminds me so much of what James says in James 4, 6 through 8. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. There's that passage from 334 again. Here's another familiar word. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Submit to God. Resist the devil, and it says he will flee from you. But there's another part here, and it says draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Stand firm in your faith. Can I ask, what are you doing to build up your faith? If Satan's going to attack, what are you doing to prevent this? so that you can resist? Is your faith and your trust this morning in Jesus Christ? Is your house built on a firm foundation? Or do the wind and the waves shake you to the core? Is the noise of this world that we're living in drowning out the voice of God? I want you to remember that persecution, problems, pressure... They're the norm for the Christian life. That's why in verse 9, Peter said, the reason we can resist the devil and stand firm in our faith is knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Last week in 1 Peter 4.12, we read, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. The whole church of Jesus Christ is under pressure because of her unique radical difference in the world today. We must learn to live in the noise. We have to be alert and we have to stand in our faith. So we have to build our faith. And it's real simple. Romans 10, 17, it says this. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It's through God's word. You know, there's no shortcut here. There's no plan B. It's plain and simply, you have to get into the word of God. Can I just be honest here? If getting into the word of God is something that you only do a couple times a week, a few times a month, you're vulnerable. You're vulnerable to the devil's attacks. Your faith is not going to be as strong as it needs to be in times of attack. It's just not. You've got to get into God's word. Verse 10, once again, it says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Reminds me of what Paul wrote in Romans 8.18 when he says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed in us. Scripture tells us that there's going to be a day where there will be no more suffering. The book of Revelation, it tells us when God comes to dwell with us, which is this glory that will one day be revealed, it says he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death shall be no more. There will be no more crying. There will be no more pain. We need to live anticipation of that day. I believe this is the kind of anticipation that Peter's living in, and it's the very next word that he says as he begins to wrap up this letter. 
When verse 11, he says, to him be dominion forever and ever, amen. This is a beautiful doxology of praise where dominion means control, supremacy, power, authority, rule, and it's all to him. It's all to Jesus. It's not to you, it's not to me, it's not to the government, it's not to our enemy, it's to him forever and ever, amen? As we finish it up, it says this in 12 through 14, by Silvanius, which is Silas, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written you briefly exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son, Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. And in verse 12, I think one of the greatest things we see that we can do as a Christian is to know the truth of God and to stand firm in it. And that leads us to our big idea. Because our ability to live in the noise is based solely in our trust and our hope in Jesus Christ. Listen, there's a lot of things in this world pulling at us, trying to get us out of the truth. There's an evil one who is trying to attack us. That's why we need to stand firm in our faith. Because if we don't stand firm in our faith, we're going to get knocked down, bowled over, and pulled out of this game. The world that we're living in is out of its mind. The world has literally embraced insanity. So we have to be firm. Firm in what we know and firm in what we understand from the Word of God. Stand firm. Don't be moved. Folks, this is how we live in the noise. Very quickly, verse 13, the she here is not a woman. The she is the church, the bride of Christ. When it's talking about Babylon, it's a reference from the book of Revelation. It seems that this is the world system apart from God. It's a reference to Rome because of the rampant sin that was going on there. This is a greeting from a church in Rome. Also a greeting from Mark, who's the spiritual son of Peter. Real quickly, give you a little bonus here. It says to greet one another with a kiss of love. Seems as this would have been a proper greeting in the early church. Think about cultures even today that greet one another with a kiss, maybe a kiss on one cheek, maybe both. But it implied a familial tie and the church was family. Yeah, how would you like it today if this is what we still did? Just kind of kiss each other, pass germs back and forth, be pretty awesome, right? appears that sometime in the fourth century this kind of went away there was an apost- there was a writing called the Apo- apostolic tradition it's the first source that kind of specifically prohibited this practice but i want to close this morning out in the same way that peter closes his letter and it's not with this kiss but it says peace to all of you who are in christ and this is how we conclude peter's first letter but before we dismiss this morning i want to take us into a time of communion. So if you've got your communion, we've talked about humility and we've talked about Jesus being our chief shepherd and Jesus being our example of what humbleness and humility are all about. And in my opinion, there's no better verse than Philippians chapter 2. I'm just going to read a few verses here. It says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that's what we remember during this time, that Jesus went to the cross because he loved you and he wanted to give you a way to have access to the Father, to forgive us of our sin. So as we take communion this morning, this is what we remember. This bread that represents his body that he gave up freely and this juice that reminds us of the blood that he shed for us. Let me pray. You can take communion and we'll close the service out. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your example as the chief shepherd that loves us, that cares about us, that was the model of humility that you are calling us to in the word that we read today. That we see the example that you became humble and obedient even to the point of going to the cross for us. Father, we thank you that you did this. We thank you for this bread that reminds us of your body and this juice that reminds us of your blood. Help us to go this week and, Father, live with that same type of humility and humbleness. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.